Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you. Visit our website at jabberaudio.com slash support to learn more or go to patreon.com slash team jabberwocky. The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Jabberwocky Audio Theater presents Through the Looking Glass. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio, Part 4 of 6. Welcome back, dear listeners. We're now over halfway through the tale of Prince Prigio. Now, I'm certain that you have paid rapt attention to the first three installments, so the summary may be deemed superfluous, but it has been rather a lot of weeks. So, to recap... In Chapter 1, we learned of the real faux kingdom of Pantuflia and the royal family. In Chapter 2, we learned about how Prince Prigio was so clever to be very annoying, enough so that... In Chapter 3, the king, his father, wishes him to die at the hands of the fire drake. Alas, Prigio's two brothers, Alfonso and Enrico, perish instead. This leads to... The entire court abandoning Prigio in Chapter 4, which in turn leads to... Prince Prigio discovering a bunch of magical items in something like an attic, but he doesn't realize this. So, in Chapter 6, he goes into town to eat while wearing a cap of darkness, which works as well as you may imagine, and he isn't seen, but... He sees a pretty girl and gets to know how kind she is, and by Chapter 7, he falls in love with her, for this happens rather quickly in fairy tales, and, truth be told, she is perfectly lovely. So, he promises to slay the fire drake for her, but then... By Chapter 8, he realizes this is really quite a tall order, so he researches a foe the fire drake might fight and finds the Remora, a fiendish beast as cold as the fire drake is hot. And so, in Chapter 9, wearing his cap of darkness and being magically nimble, he challenges the fire drake on behalf of the Remora, unbeknownst to the Remora. And so we come to Chapter 10 where Prince Prigio is about to challenge the Remora on behalf of the Fire Drake, unbeknownst to the Remora. My goodness, we are getting up there in chapters, aren't we? I suppose we should find a way to streamline these summaries further. Whew! The hill of the Remora was one solid mass of frozen steel, and the cold rushed out of it like the breath of some icy beast, which indeed it was. All around were things like marble statues of men in armor. They were the dead bodies of the knights, horses and all, who had gone out of old to fight the Remora, and who had been frosted up by him. The prince felt his blood stand still, and he grew faint, but he took heart, for there was no time to waste, yet he could nowhere see the Remora. Hi! shouted the prince. Then... From a narrow chink at the bottom of the smooth black hill, a chink no deeper than that under a door but a mile wide, stole out a hideous head. 
It was as flat as the head of a skatefish. It was deathly pale, and two chill-blue eyes, dead-colored like stones, looked out of it. Then there came a whisper, like the breath of the bitter east wind on a wintry day. Here I am, said the prince from the top of the hill. Then the flat, white head set itself against the edge of the chink from which it had peeped, and slowly, like the movement of a sheet of ice, it slipped upwards and curled upwards and up and up. There seemed no end to it at all, and it moved horribly without feet holding on by its own frost to the slippery side of the frozen hill. Now all the lower part of the black hill was covered with the horrid white thing coiled about it in smooth, flat, shiny coils. And still the head was higher than the rest. And still the icy cold came nearer and nearer like death. The prince almost fainted. Everything seemed to swim, and in one moment more, he would have fallen stiff on the mountaintop, and the white head would have crawled over him, and the cold coils would have slipped over him and turned him to stone. And still the thing slipped up from the chink under the mountain. But the prince made a great effort. He moved, and in two steps he was far away, down in the valley, where it was not so very cold. Hi! He shouted as soon as his tongue could move within his chattering teeth. There came a clear, hissing answer like frozen words dropping round him. Wait till I come down. What do you want? Then the white folds began to slide like melting ice from the black hill. Prince Prigio felt the air getting warmer behind him and colder in front of him. He looked round, and there were the trees beginning to blacken in the heat, and the grass looking like a sea of fire along the plains, for the fire drake was coming. The prince just took time to shout, The fire drake is going to pay you a visit. And then he soared to the top of a neighboring hill and looked on at what followed. Chapter 11, The Battle It was an awful sight to behold. When the Remora heard the name of the fire drake, his hated enemy, he slipped with wonderful speed from the cleft of the mountain into the valley. On and on and on he poured over rock and tree, as if a frozen river could slide downhill. On and on till there were miles of him stretching along the valley, miles of the smooth-ribbed, icy creature crawling and slipping forwards. The green trees dropped their leaves as he advanced. The birds fell down dead from the sky, slain by his frosty breath. But... Fast as the remora stole forward, the fire drake came quicker yet, flying and clashing his fiery wings. At last, they were within striking distance, and the fire drake, stooping from the air, dashed with his burning horns and flaming feet, slap into the body of the remora. Then there rose a steam so dreadful, such a white yet fiery vapor of heat, 
that no one who had not the prince's magic glass could have seen what happened. With horrible grunts and roars, the fire drake tried to burn his way right through the flat body of the remora and to chase him to the cleft in the rock. But the remora, hissing terribly and visibly melting away in places, yet held his ground. And the prince could see his cold white folds climbing slowly up the hooves of the fire drake, up and up till they reached his knees, and the great burning beast roared like a hundred bulls with the pain. Then up the fire drake leaped, and hovering on his fiery wings, he lighted in the midst of the remora's back and dashed into it with his horns. But the flat, cruel head writhed backwards, and slowly bending over on itself, the wounded remora slid greedily to fasten again on the limbs of the fire drake. Meanwhile, the prince, safe on his hill, was lunching on his sandwich and snacks that he had brought with him. Mm. Go it, Remora! Go it, Fire Drake! Ooh, you're gaining! Give it to him, Remora! He shouted in the wildest excitement. Nobody had ever seen such a battle, and he had it all to himself, and he never enjoyed anything more. Mm. He hated the remora so much that he almost wished the fire drake could beat it, for the fire drake was the more natural beast of the pair. Still, he was alarmed when he saw that the vast flat body of the remora was now slowly coiling backwards, backwards into the cleft below the hill, while a thick wet mist showed how cruelly it had suffered. But the fire drake too was in an unhappy way, for his legs were now cold and black, his horns were black also, though his body, especially near the heart, glowed still like red-hot iron. Go it, Remora! cried the prince. His legs are giving way. He's groggy on his pins. One more effort, and he won't be able to move! Encouraged by this advice, the white, slippery Remora streamed out of his cavern again, more and more of him uncoiling, as if the mountain were quite full of him. He had lost strength, no doubt, for the steam and mist went up from him in clouds, and the hissing of his angry voice grew fainter, but so did the roars of the fire drake. Presently, they sounded more like groans, and at last the remora slipped up his legs above the knees and fastened on his very heart of fire. Then, the fire drake stood groaning like a black bull, knee-deep in snow, and still the remora climbed and climbed. Go it now, fire drake! shouted the prince, for he knew that if the remora won, it would be too cold for him to draw near the place and cut off the fire drake's head and tail. Go to it, Drake! He's slackening! cried the prince again, and the brave fire drake made one last furious effort, and rising on his wings, dropped just on the spine of his enemy. The wounded Remora curled back his head again on himself, and again crawled steaming terribly towards his enemy. But the struggle was too much for the gallant Remora. The flat, cruel head moved slower. The steam from his thousand wounds grew fiercer. And he gently breathed his last. Just as the fire drake too fell over and lay exhausted. With one final roar, 
like the breath of a thousand furnaces, the fire drake expired. The prince, watching from the hilltop, could scarcely believe that these two awful scourges of nature, which had so long devastated his country, were actually dead. But when he had looked on for half an hour, and only a river ran where the remora had been, while the body of the fire drake lay stark and cold, he hurried to the spot. Drawing the sword of sharpness, he hacked off at two blows the iron head and the tail of the fire drake. They were a weary weight to carry, but in a few strides of the shoes of swiftness, he was at his castle, where he threw down his burden and nearly fainted with excitement and fatigue. But the castle clock struck half past seven, dinner was at eight, and the poor prince crawled on hands and knees to the garret. Here he put on the wishing cap, wished for a pint of champagne, a hot bath, and his best black velvet and diamond suit. In a moment these were provided. He bathed, dressed, drank a glass of wine, packed up the head and tail of the fire drake, sat down on the flying carpet, and knocked at the door of the English ambassador as the clocks were striking eight in Gluckstein. Punctuality is the politeness of princes, and a prince is polite when he is in love. Hello. The prince was received at the door by a stout porter and led into the hall, where several butlers met him, and he laid the mortal remains of the fire drake under the cover of the flying carpet. Then he was led upstairs, my lady, and he made his bow to the pretty lady, who, my lord, of course, made him a magnificent curtsy. She seemed prettier and kinder than ever. The prince was so happy that he never noticed how something was wrong about the dinner. Ahem. Really? Oh, dear. The ambassador looked about and seemed to miss someone and spoke in a low voice to one of the servants, who answered also in a low voice, and what he said seemed to displease the ambassador. But the prince was so busy in talking to his lady and in eating his dinner, too, that he never observed anything unusual. He had never been to such a pleasant dinner. Chapter 12, A Terrible Misfortune. When the ladies left and the prince and the other gentlemen were alone, the ambassador appeared more gloomy than ever. At last he took the prince into a corner on pretense of showing him a rare statue. Does your royal highness know that you are in considerable danger? Still? said the prince, thinking of the fire drake. The ambassador did not know what he meant, for he had never heard of the fight, but he answered gravely, Never more than now. Then he showed the prince two proclamations, which had been posted all about the town. Here is the first. To all loyal subjects, whereas our eldest son, Prince Prigio, hath of late been guilty of several high crimes and misdemeanors, First, by abandoning the post of danger against the fire drake, whereby our beloved sons, Prince Alfonso and Prince Enrico, have perished and been overdone by that monster. Secondly, by attending an unseemly revel in the town of Gluckstein, where he brawled in the streets. Thirdly, by trying to seduce away the hearts of our loyal subjects in that city, 
and to blow up a party against our crown and our peace. This is to give warning that whoever consorts with, comforts, aids, or abets the said Prince Prigio is thereby a partner in his treason, and that a reward of five thousand purses will be given to whomsoever brings the said prince alive to our castle of Falkenstein. Grognio Rex. And here is the second proclamation. Reward the fire drake. Whereas our dominions have lately been devastated by a fire drake, the Salamander Furiosus of Buffon. This is to advise all that whosoever brings the horns and tail of said fire drake to our castle of Falkenstein shall receive five thousand purses, the position of crown prince with the usual perquisites, and the hand of the king's niece, the Lady Molinda. Grognio Rex. Hmm, said the prince. I did not think his majesty wrote so well. And he would have liked to say, Don't you think we might join the ladies? But, sir, said the ambassador, The streets are lined with soldiers, and I know not how you have escaped them. Here, under my roof, you are safe for the moment. But a prolonged stay, excuse my inhospitality, could not but strain the harmonious relations which prevail between the government of Pantuflia and that which I have the honor to represent. We don't want to fight, and no more, I think, do you, said the prince, smiling. Then how does your royal highness mean to treat the proclamations? Why, by winning these ten thousand purses, I can tell you, one million pounds is worth having, said the prince. I'll deliver up the said prince alive at Falkenstein this very night. Also the horns and tail of said fire drake. But I don't want to marry my cousin Molly. May I remind your royal highness that Falkenstein is three hundred miles away. Moreover, my head butler, Benson, disappeared from the house before dinner, and I fear he went to warn Captain Kopsovsky that you are here. That is nothing, said the prince. But, my dear Lord Kelso, may I not have the pleasure of presenting Lady Rosalind with a little gift, a promise I made to her last night, merely the head and tail of a fire drake which I stock this morning. The ambassador was so astonished that he ran straight upstairs, forgetting his manners and crying, Linda, Linda, come down at once. Here's a surprise for you. Lady Rosalind came sweeping down with a smile on her kind face. She guessed what it was, though the prince had said nothing about it at dinner. Lead the way, your royal highness, cried the ambassador, and the prince, offering Lady Rosalind his arm, went out into the hall, where he saw neither his carpet nor the horns and tail of the fire drake. He turned quite pale and said, Will you kindly ask the servants where the little Persian prayer rug and the parcel which I brought with me have been placed? Lord Kelso rang the bell, and in came all the servants with William the underbutler at their head. William, said his lordship, where have you put his royal highness's parcel and his carpet? Please, your lordship, said William, we think Benson have took them away with him. And where is Benson? We don't know, your lordship. 
We think he have been taken away. Taken away? By whom? William stammered and seemed at a loss for a reply. Quick, answer. What do you know about it? William said at last, rather as if he were making a speech. Your royalness and my lords and ladies, it was like this. His royalness comed in with a rug over his arm and summit under it, and he lays it down on that there seat. And Thomas shows him into the drawing room. Then Benson says, Dinner will be ready in five minutes. How tired I do feel. Then he takes the liberty of sitting himself down on his royalness's rug. And he says, uh, asking your pardon. I've had about enough of service here. I'm about tired and I think so better in myself. I wish I was at the king's court and butler. But before the words was out of his mouth, off he flies like a shot through the open door. And his royalness's parcel with him. I run to the door and there he was, flying right over the town in a northerly direction. And that's all I know, for I would not tell a lie, not if it was ever so. And me and Thomas, as didn't see it, and Cook, we thinks as how Benson was come for. And Cook says as she don't wonder at it neither, for a grumbling or more ill-conditioned... Thank you, William, said Lord Kelso. That will do. You can go. For the present. Chapter 13 Surprises. The prince said nothing, the ambassador said nothing, Lady Rosalind said never a word until they were in the drawing room. It was a lovely warm evening, and the French windows were wide open on the balcony, which looked over the town and away north to the hills. Below them flowed the clear green water of the Glukthal, and still nobody said a word. At last, the prince spoke. This is a very strange story, Lord Kelso. Very, sir, said the ambassador. But true, added the prince. At least there is no reason in the nature of things why it shouldn't be true. I can hardly believe, sir, that the conduct of Benson, whom I always found a most respectable man, deserved... That he should have left the premises, said the prince. Oh, no, it was a mere accident and might have happened to any of us who chanced to sit down on my carpet. And then the prince told them shortly all about it, how the carpet was one of a number of fairy properties which had been given to him at his christening, and how so long a time had gone by before he discovered them, and how probably the carpet had carried the butler where he had said he wanted to go, namely to the king's court at Falkenstein. It would not matter so much, added the prince, only... I had relied on making my peace with his majesty, my father, by aid of those horns and that tail. He was set on getting them, and if the Lady Rosalind had not expressed a wish for them, they would today have been in his possession. Oh, sir, you honor us too highly, murmured Lady Rosalind, and the prince blushed and said, Not at all. Impossible. Then, of course, the ambassador became quite certain that his daughter was admired by the crown prince, who was on bad terms with the king of the country, and a more uncomfortable position for an ambassador, however, they are used to them. What on earth am I to do with the young man? He thought. He can't stay here forever, and without his carpet, he can't get away, for the soldiers have orders to seize him as soon as he appears in the street. And in the meantime, Benson will be pretending that he killed the fire drake. For 
He must have got to Falkenstein by now, and they will be for marrying him to the king's niece and making my butler crown prince to the kingdom of Pantuflia. It is dreadful. Now, all this time, the prince was on the balcony telling Lady Rosalind all about how he got the fire drake done for, in the most modest way, for, as he said, I didn't kill him, and it is really the Remora, poor fellow, who should marry Molly, but he's dead. At this very moment, there was a whiz in the air, something shot past them, and through the open window, the king, the queen, Benson, and the mortal remains of the fire drake were shot into the ambassador's drawing room. And that, as it happens, is both the end of our time and the chapter. Have at it, announcer woman. You've been listening to Through the Looking Glass from Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio, Part 4 of 6. The story was written by Andrew Lang and lightly adapted for radio by Bjorn Munson. Produced by Jabberwocky Audio Theatre in association with Arlington Independent Media, W-E-R-A-L-P, 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. Featured in the cast were Bjorn Munson as the narrator, Nick DePinto as Prince Prigio, Amy Tebow as the Remora, Joel Snyder as the Fire Drake and Ambassador Kelso, Brooks Tegler as Benson, Tara Garwood as Lady Rosalind, Kevin Murray as King Grognier, and William R. Coughlin as William. Not our coffee. Recorded at Tolby Wood Studios in deepest Springfield, with supplemental recording in many other places. See our show notes on jabberaudio.com for details. There, you'll also find our latest episodes and enough information to satisfy a prince. It's true. I've started listening to the other stories, and well, I don't know about this Aiden Vosky character, but. Maybe someone should give him a blaster. I'm not saying anything. Dialogue editing by Maurice Malda. With sound editing and final mixing by William R. Kaufman. Post-production services provided by Tohu Bohu Productions, LLC. If you're enjoying Prince Prigio and the other yarns we spin at Jabberwocky Audio Theater, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash teamjabberwocky for exclusive content and to help us continue to bring you further tales of silliness, suspense, and high adventure. Until next time, this is Kim Davenport saying thanks for listening. And tune in next week for part five of Prince Prigio. Hast thou slain the Jabberwock?